Hey, listen, uh, you know, as you look at, as we think back to Jasper's sermon last week, Paul says this, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. This is what I, he does. He urges us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Urges us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That is an absolute high calling, strong urge by the Apostle Paul. That when you peel back, let's look at it from this perspective, when you peel back the Spirit from the flesh, what a nasty place the heart of mankind is. And that's what is brought into the church. And so, as I think, as I think through Paul's urging for what we are supposed to look like, maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the life of the church, and I take into account what my heart looks like, and I'm supposing, apart from Jesus Christ, what your heart looks like, it's a wonder, it's a wonder the church can even hold it together. And so, as I bring the word for you today, I know, I, you know what, I love it throughout the course of the week when I hear from you prayer warriors saying, um, saying to me that we're praying for you as you're preparing to preach. I'm so thankful for that. And I'm going to ask those prayer warriors out there to continue to pray. Don't end just because now the sermon has started. Pray throughout the course of the sermon. I always, always, always want this. I want the Lord to stand between me and you because I want him to hear your words and not mine. This is not about a man declaring the word. It's about the Lord God declaring his word to you. And so please pray to that end. All right? So as you think about, as you think about Paul's urging for us and what we are supposed to look like, you can say, man, what in the world makes the church different than any other institution known to mankind since the beginning of time? Any other institution so let's consider a couple of things here. What motivates these things to stay together? And what holds them together? What's their motivation and what actually holds these things together? For example, family. We have loyalty to blood. We have mutual love and respect. There's a common purpose to protect each other. There's a desire to see our families grow and flourish. Friends, very similar, mutual affection for each other, a mutual concern for the personal well-being for those that we are deep and deep friend relationship with. Fun, love to have fun together. Businesses, hey, remove, remove the almighty dollar from a business and I'll show you a business that's not going to exist. Because as a business flourishes, so do the ones who help to make it flourish. And if you take away the reason for its existence, there's no reason to have a business. Athletic teams, if they're winning, everything is wonderful. There's satisfaction and victory. But listen, what happens with these institutions when the reason for existing no longer satisfies? What happens when they don't satisfy? What happens when the honeymoon phase of this institution washes away and the hardship that comes from the day in, day out, tedious work that's involved to make sure these things continue on. What happens when trust is broken, when lies are told, when greed enters the picture, 
What happens when pride begins to be expressed? What happens when gentleness is overtaken by harshness and hurt and pain take over and drive individuals in this institution to self-preservation? What does it look like? Let's put it in these terms. What happens when the initial purpose for existing is replaced with these three things? Self-interest, it's about me. Self-promotion, I believe in my stuff more than your stuff, so I'm going to promote my stuff. Self-promotion. And then when things get rocky, it turns into self-preservation as everyone expresses what is most important to them. I need to protect myself and what is most important to me. You know, you know what happens when these things take over. Families fracture, friends separate, businesses fail, athletic teams fall apart. Listen to this about marriages. Marriages, according to the McKinley-Irvin Law Group, first marriages, that includes church and outside of the church, 42 to 45 percent of all first marriages fail. Second marriages, 60% of all second marriages fail. And then third, if someone gets married a third time, 73% of those marriages end in divorce. Listen to this about family business. 70% of family-owned businesses fail before the second generation because of feuding within the family. It doesn't even have anything to do with the business. It has to do with Self-interest, self-promotion, self-preservation in the life of the family. And so, therefore, the business, fa- excuse me, the business fails. Well, you know what? It's sad to say, but when you take a look at these institutions, the family, friends, and you think about your church experience, there's not a whole lot separates what the church looks like from what the world looks like. So think about your church experience. How often have you witnessed or even been a part of something in the life of the church that could have been highlighted on, let's say, the Jerry Springer show? There are some things that are just ugly, ugly, ugly in the life of the church. And so you step back and say, what What in the world makes the church different than any other organization? Listen to this. An article um, in Church Leadership, um, there was an article written by Richard Kredger. His first, this is a doctor, his first doctoral thesis, he took 10 years and he observed a thousand different churches. That's a long time. And he interviewed many, many people over the course of those years. Why do people leave churches? And this is what he said. This, this is what he found. Over 91% said that the most significant factor or main reason that people leave a church is because of conflict and gossip, violating James chapter 3. 78% said they left because of the hypocrisy and judgmental attitudes and actions of the people in that church. Sound familiar? I'm sure you've heard these. Third reason. Thousand churches, ten years, many, many people interviewed. Third reason. I don't fit in. Sixty-six percent say, I have no idea where I fit in the church. And the guts of that says, 
I don't know what, I don't know what there is in the church that's about me. It's a self-focus. 66% of the people they reported, I don't fit in because I don't know where to fit in. And then the fourth, the fourth reason why people leave a church, 62% said that there's an unwillingness in the life of that church body to deal with sin. And when this happens, it creates strife and factions. This is a modern-day doctoral thesis. It's a modern-day um, survey that this man engaged in. This is what the church looks like today. Let's look at what the church looked like in the early days of the church, especially as it relates to the, as it regards the First Corinthian church, the, the Corinthian church. Listen to what it looked like. First Corinthians chapter twelve, the apostle Paul says this of that church: those in the church became very proud of their gift sets, so much so that they became out of line in how they were expressing their gift sets. Pride encroached upon the church. In chapter 6, he says that there were those in the church who were involved in lawsuits. They were suing each other. They couldn't figure it out. Chapter 11, Paul records that some in the church were even getting drunk during communion. And so if they're getting drunk during communion, I wonder what that means for them when they're at home. This is the church. Chapter 5, Paul says that there were some living lives that were laced with sexual immorality. Some were even having sex with members in the same family unit. And in chapter 11, the Apostle Paul Paul says this of the Corinthian church. Paul actually told the church that their meeting together was actually doing more harm than it was doing good. This is the church. If this is actually the church, then I'm guessing you, as well as I, have some questions regarding it. What makes us any different? Here's my first question. I spent, before I came into ministry, at the age of 38, I spent 12, 15 years or so in uh, the secular workplace. And I know what the secular workplace looks like. And so my question is, if, if our church, if the church is like the survey done by Richard Kredger, and if we can relate to the church of, the, of Corinth, and I consider what it was like to work in the secular workplace, my first question is this, what makes it any different? What makes the church any different than the place I used to work? Why in the world would I ever want to be a part of something like this? I spend 40 to 50 hours a week in that workplace. Why would I I want to subject myself to that very same thing in the life and the body of the church? Man, it doesn't sound good for us, does it? How is it even possible for the church to continue? Well, let me give you some insider information. No matter how ugly the church might be, it's going to make it. It will continue. With something as messy of the church, what could its purpose possibly be?
Well, before we get to what holds the church together, let's consider what our purpose should be, all right? Here's the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is this, and it's found in Matthew chapter 28, and it's our mission statement. It's to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. That's our mission, to glorify God. The Westminster Confession puts it this way, the chief end of man, the chief end of you, the chief end of me, is that we would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. John Piper puts it this way in his Desiring God book. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Our singular purpose is to declare the glory of the Lord with our lives and through the things we do and say. Listen to this prayer by Richard Baxter, Baxter, a Puritan pastor from the late 1600s. This was his prayer for his church. He understood that his church's purpose was to glorify God, and it, could only de- it can only be done by loving God. And this was his prayer. May the living God, who is the portion and rest of the saints, make these our carnal minds so spiritual and our earthly hearts so heavenly that loving him may be the work of our lives and therefore getting God his glory. How in the world can the church um, fulfill its purpose, its mission, when we are so full of what dishonors God, when we are full of self-preservation, self-promotion, self-exaltation, self, self, self? This wasn't Paul's focus in Ephesians when he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the call. He wanted us to walk in humility and gentleness toward each other, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of the peace. Statistics reveal the Bible speaks the truth of it, And our own experience suggests that the church is a messy place. Hard stuff is going to happen in the life and the body of the church. And so here are some questions I I want you to park in the front of your mind, okay? How do I respond when another's mess spills on me? How do I respond in the body when someone else's mess spills on me? That's the first question. The second is this. How do I respond when my mess, when my mess spills on someone else? How am I responsible for maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? And I can tell you it has less to do with focusing on the mess of others and our own mess than it does with the truth that we're going to find in verses 4, 5, and 6. So while we know what our purpose is, it's to glorify God, what's the one thing that will keep the church unified? What is the one thing that will keep the church unified? Or you could say that will keep the church one. This is what it is. 
It's a vertical focus on the triune God. It's a vertical focus on the triune God and the one he bring and the oneness he brings. That's the very thing that's going to help us understand how to deal with the messes that are involved in the, that are involved in the life of the church. R. Fawcett, Jameson R. Fawcett, he was a theologian and a biblical commentator from the late 1800s. Listen to what he says. Truth is the first thing. So we have what Jasper preached last week, these urgings of Paul that would lead to us maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That can't happen. The activity of and the actions of that would reveal we are a church that's able to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that cannot happen if the truth of verses 4, 5, and 6 are not a reality in our lives. So as I was preparing this sermon, I'm thinking in my head, how in the world, how in the world am I going to preach these seven ones that the Apostle Paul speaks to when he doesn't even break them down? He just lists them, one this, one this, one this, one this. It should have been a part of Jasper's sermon. Well, you know what's kind of crazy? We laid out our uh, sermon series um, through the end of May. I'm not sure what it is. But, but God's sovereign plan is so wonderful that he would have me to preach this sermon to you, that we would spend time on this passage alone, 4, 5, and 6. And he revealed it to me this last week when we laid out the sermon calendar between now and May. And it's real interesting, but at the beginning of chapter 6 is a word to children and how they're supposed to res- respond to their parents. And that happens to fall on Mother's Day. And so I'm seeing right now God's sovereign plan as we work through this together. Both Jasper, Charles, Corey, myself, you, But this is what Fawcett says, truth is the first thing. Those who reach it will at last reach unity. We need to understand the truth before we can ever expect to carry out verses 1, 2, and 3. Because truth is one, while those who seek unity as the first thing may purchase it, but at the sacrifice of truth, and so of the soul itself. This is what he's saying. If you forsake the truth of the Scripture, and in particular right now, verses 4, 5, and 6, if you forsake that for the sake of unity and peace in the body, you have it completely backwards. And and Fawcett goes so far as to say you're sacrificing even your soul when you mess with the doctrine that Jesus Christ brings through his word. Truth must come first. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we're about to see him put himself forward in three verses that are just mind-blowing to me. A heart changed by God, I know you've heard this before, a heart changed by God is verses 4, 5, and 6. We'll bring a life changed for God, which is verses 1, 2, and 3. We have to get 4, 5, and 6 before we can do 1, 2, and 3. Let's say it this way, all right? Hearts changed by God will result in a church changed for God. If we are going to walk in a manner worthy of the call to which we've been called, and if you have any desire, brother or sister in Christ, 
to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we need to get these four, three verses, 4, 5, and 6. And so with that in mind, will you turn to me that, this, to this passage? Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6 say this, and you're going to see seven ones. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that the truth of this, these three verses would sink deep into our hearts, would penetrate our hearts, would change our minds. Lord, that we would accept the truth that this is where our eyes are supposed to be constantly focused on you instead of the mess and trusting you to the mess that you will deal with it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's these three verses, church, that make make us different. This is what makes us different than any other institution on the face of the planet. This, the truth of these three verses, are what's going to make us last, make the church stay together and fulfill its purpose to glorify God. So with that in mind, let's break this down. And so the key word is one. Keep that in mind. The key word is one. It's said seven times uh, relating to seven different things. Verse 4, we're going to see the Holy Spirit spoken of. Verse 5, we're going to see the activity of the Son, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6, we're going to see what God the Father is, has done and is doing in the life of his body. All right? So the first, the first uh, excuse me, verse 4 says this about the Holy Spirit. First spiritual reality, number one, there's one Spirit. There is only one Spirit, and that is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what is necessary for us to belong to the same body. He is the one that binds us together. He is the one that brings unity. He is the unifying force that will keep the church together from now until the day Jesus Christ returns. He is one of the three of the Trinity. He is our guarantee. He is our deposit. He is our helper. He is the Holy Spirit of God. That's who he is. There is no other. So when you see the Apostle Paul saying one spirit, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Holy Spirit does, spiritual reality number two. It brings one body. That's the universal church. That's him, that's the Holy Spirit Spirit pouring himself into the life of those he has chosen to be his family. He's the one that broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. He's the unifier of the church. He is the one that makes the body what it is as he seals us together. People of many different backgrounds, people that aren't like us, if there are 400 people sitting in this room, there are 400 people with different expectations of the way things are going to go, with different opinions about what we should be doing, with, with different family dynamics, with different health issues, with different everything. And yet we are still one body bound together by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28 say. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as, many as, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male. There is no female. For you are all 
one in Christ Jesus. And that is only possible if you possess his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, one spirit, brings one body. And then the third one, this third spiritual reality is this. He brings us one hope. Man, I'm telling you what. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he made a way for us to be in communion with him as he gives us his Holy Spirit. And at the moment the Holy Spirit pours into you, he's given you a hope that is eternal and that will never be shaken and never be taken. And that hope is that one day Jesus Christ is going to return and he's going to settle this mess once and for all. He's going to bring us into his physical presence and we're going to worship him forever and ever in his eternal kingdom. That's our one hope. Ephesians 1, let's go back to Ephesians 1.14. It says it's this way. He is the one who guarantees our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 1 Peter chapter 3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to him, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, this is our hope, to an inheritance that is our imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Man, I hope you can, I hope you can hang your soul on that hope because he is coming again to bring us into that eternal inheritance. One spirit brings us into one body. He binds us together. That same one spirit is the one who has given us our hope. And I am so thankful for the truth of the Holy Spirit that he has rushed upon every one of you who has bowed the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's verse 4. Let's take a look at verse 5, the Son. Let me ask you, church, where's your focus? Where is your focus? Verse 4 says this. Excuse me, verse 5 says this. There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. There is one Lord. There is one Lord, and his name is Jesus. He is the head of the church. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says this. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Jesus Christ is the only Lord. And you know what? Let's put it this way. He's the only capital L Lord. I know there are Lords all around us. Anything that we would place as a priority in our life above the person of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes we are our own Lord. We're the ones we're serving. But there is only one way to relationship with God the Father, and that's through the Lordship of Jesus Christ, accepting Him as Lord. He is the one and only Lord. One name under heaven, and it's Jesus. That's spiritual reality number four. Number five is this, one faith. This one Lord Jesus who went to the cross, He's the one that went to the cross and made it possible for us 
to have the very faith that he would gift to us. So the one faith is this. It's the faith that he entrusts to you the moment you bow your knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ, accepting what he did on the cross and permitting him to have control over your life. He gifts you with his faith, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. And then once you have your faith, he wants to see your faith in action as he lays out for you the very things that he would have you to walk into. He planned the very things that your faith would respond to even before you come into relationship with him, that you would walk into them. This is the person of Jesus Christ. One Lord, one faith, and then Reality number six is this, one baptism. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 says this. One baptism. I baptize you with water for repentance, John the Baptist says. But he who is coming after me is mightier than me, whose sandals I am not worthy to, to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, here's what that means. One baptism is this. Yes, we have water baptism. We believe in baptism by immersion. It's an outward expression. It's our expression to the body that we are believers in Jesus Christ. But the baptism spoken here of is not water baptism. It's baptism of the Holy Spirit. The moment you give your life and your, your life to the Lord, you enter into relationship with him. He baptizes you with his Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. And then water baptism is just an expression of that. This is the activity of the Son. What holds the church together? The Holy Spirit, verse 4. The Son, Jesus, verse 5. And so I ask, church, when you think in regard to the body that's unified by the Holy Spirit, where is your focus? Are you tempted to look upon the messiness of it or are you tempted more so to look at the person who makes the church what it is? Verse 4, verse 5. Now let's take a look at verse 6. We see the Holy Spirit at work. We see Jesus at work. And now we see the Father. Let me start from verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And then there is one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Here's the seventh reality we need to grasp. And that there's one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. I know many people take this passage out of context and they use it to say, well, that means everyone is saved. Well, let's not take it out of the context of Paul's writing to the church. This letter was written for the church and intended for the church of Ephesus. And now we have it in front of us. What this means is God, God is father of those who are a part of his body. No one else. God loves his family, and he wants what is best for us, and he wants to get his glory out of us. And so he works in us and through us. 
He is God over us and Father over us. And he is at work in us. So we see Jesus Christ. Let's back up to the beginning. We see Jesus Christ headed to the cross. And what he did on the cross made it possible for us to be marked by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes us one body and it gives us one hope. He gives us one hope. Jesus Christ on the cross is the one who gives us one faith. He gives us our faith and our baptism. And this is all so that we can maintain unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, responding, responding to each other with humility and gentleness. But God knows that we're not going to grow without messiness. And here's what I believe. The messier the situation I find myself in, the greater I'm going to grow in my understanding of who the person of Jesus Christ is and what he has for me and how he wants me to grow out of it. Matthew chapter 18 says this. It's always been a hard passage for me. It says, temptations to sin are sure to come. I get that. We live in a fallen world. We have an enemy that wants to destroy us. There's sin all around us, fallenness, brokenness everywhere. So I get it. Temptation to sin is sure to come. I know my flesh. But then, words of Jesus say this, and they must. And they must. If we could somehow fashion the church, if we could somehow fashion the church, that it would be completely unified. And there would never be anything to press on the nerve of your sin, to reveal it. There would be little spiritual growth. The Lord, the Lord tests us to prove to us our faith. The Lord, the Lord permits temptation to come to us to reveal the areas of our lives where we are messy and we need to lay aside. And so he permits these things to come. We may think we know the best way to God's glory, but our way isn't the best way. No matter how messy it is, it's always better, and we will grow faster when Jesus is Lord over our mess. So let me ask you this question, church. What is the one thing that will unify a church? Is it being overly concerned with what's happening to our right or to our left? Or is it a vertical focus on the triune God? Verses 1, 2, and 3 become easier and easier and easier when we are able, when we are able to main focus on our triune God and what he's doing in and through our lives. Truth is the first thing. Let me remind you of this. Truth is the first thing. So those who reach it will at last reach unity because truth is one. So I'm going to do something. I've never done this before, and I haven't seen it done before. So I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to go back here. And I want you to look at the cross.
I want you to think about the life of the church as you know it. Think about messes you've been involved in. And think about the messes that you've brought. And right now, your great desire is for yourself to maintain focused on our triune God. As Jesus went to the cross, made a way for the Spirit to be in us. And having God the Father love us so much that he would walk us through the messes that we have. Your desire is for yourself and the church to stay focused on that, but stuff just keeps dragging you down. Two questions for you. What are the messes in the life of the church that distract your vertical focus? What are the messes in the life of the church that distract your vertical focus? More importantly, what are the messes in your life that distract the church from its vertical focus? What needs to happen in your life for those things to change? What are the mountains in your personal life that need to crumble? What's the ocean of mess you see around you that you need to lay at the foot of the cross? Maybe you have a sickness. Maybe there's a physical weakness that's distracting you. Sickness that's distracting you. Whether it be in the life of someone else or yourself, what is it right now that's distracting I'm going to pray a prayer, and then I would ask that you would wrestle over this a little bit and that you wouldn't quickly leave, because God desires that in the life of his body, we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so if there are things right now that are disrupting your fellowship with other believers in the life of this church, deal with it. It's time to repent. The stairs will be open for you to go down and make it make it public, that you want people to be praying for you, and I'd ask that you do that. So we're going to close this way. I'm going to pray a prayer, and then the worship team is going to come out and lead us in another song. But listen to this Puritan pastor's prayer that I spoke of earlier. Let's pray it together. Oh, Lord God, you are our living God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be our portion and that you would be our rest. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make our carnal mind so spiritual. Lord, knock down our flesh. Help us to be more concerned with who you are to the church and the unity you bring than we are with what's going on around us. Bring us rest, we pray, Lord God. Transform our carnal minds and make them spiritual and our earthly hearts so heavenly. Make them heavenly, Lord God, that we would love you and love to see your glory.
poured out on our lives in the life of our brothers and sisters here in this church. Thank you for your activity on the cross, Lord, for bringing us into relationship with you. Thank you for marking us and sealing us and guaranteeing our eternal dwelling by your, by your marking us with your Holy Spirit. And then thank you, God the Father, for not leaving us to ourselves and for permitting things to challenge us to wipe away our mess. Have your glory in our life, we pray in Jesus' name.